Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and from where have they come? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne shall spread His tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. This chapter is in between the sixth and the seventh seals. The first six seals were opened in chapter six and then the seventh seal will be in chapter eight. And so in chapter six we saw last time, that there was intense judgment that God inflicts upon the inhabitants of the earth, those who dwell on the earth. And at the end of it, in verse 17, 617, it says, The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The people say. Who is able to stand? Who is able to be there uh, in the presence of God or tolerate anything that God might do to them. Who is able to bear it, tolerate it, stand, and withhold or with 
stand any kind of judgment and punishment that God might bring? Well, to answer that question, we have chapter 7, which is a chapter of redemption. It's a chapter of redemption. There was punishment in the previous chapter. They asked the question, those who are being punished, asked the question, who is able to stand? And then in chapter 7, the answer is given. The answer is given about who can stand. In the first part, about God's control over all these events, and then in the next two sections of chapter 7, who it is that will participate in God's redemption. So let, now let's see. In verses 1 to 3, what we find here is that God is in control of all of these events, whether for punishment or for redemption, and that in due time, He will send forth His angels who, are, who will carry out His will and destroy the earth in due time. So, verse 1. After He sees the six seals and the punishments, He says, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind should blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. He sees four angels, four angels in the four corners of the earth. The four corners means north, south, east, and west. It is a way, a metaphorical way of describing the compass, as we say north, south, east, east and west. And it, so we shouldn't take four corners to mean that the earth is flat and is a rectangle or a square or something like that. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible uses metaphors, just as we use metaphors today. Even today, every day, the, the, new, the weathermen say, the sun rise and the sun set. We use that metaphorical expression because that's what it appears like. It looks that way, though we know that the earth is round, spherical, and so there should be no problems for us to see that John sees it like that too. He understands that the earth is a globe and spherical. And he simply speaks of the four corners as the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. So he sees these angels, four angels, holding back the four winds. The four winds. Now, the four winds, whichever direction that they come, whether they come from the north or south, the east or the west, they are holding them back. They have control and power to control what happens on the earth. So that no, nothing on the earth, the sea, or tree, or any tree is harmed. There is no harm to any of these natural elements because the angels with the power of God that is relegated and delegated out to them is given to them so that they have control over these events. This should not surprise us that angels have control over the elements. They have control over what happens on the earth. They have a delegated control over things that happen on the earth. We know in the book of Job, Job chapters 1 and 2, that God gave Satan permission to bring harm upon Job and Job's family and possessions. This is what happens. So a delegated power God gave to Satan to do so. And in the same way, there are delegated powers to good angels and even, even uh, e evil angels or good angels to help the people of God to restrain evil or even to inflict punishment. Another example of helping the, the saints would be in Hebrews 13.2, Let us show hospitality to strangers, for in doing so some have entertained angels without knowing it. 
Some have entertained angels without knowing it. And that's a positive and, and good example of how God sends angels to help his people. Well, they have control over whether the earth is going to receive the punishment of God, the destruction of God. We do know from 2 Peter chapter 3 that the earth and the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. They will be destroyed and God will renew the heavens and the earth so that there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And even John in the book of Revelation <coughs> chapters 21 and 22, he describes the new heavens and the new earth. But until that time comes, until that time comes, what needs to happen? Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, meaning from the east. He saw coming from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. This other angel, and because it says another angel, it is probably another of the same kind. Not another of a different kind, but another of the same kind. And the original word in the language, Greek language, indicates that. Another angel similar to the four angels. So this is a created being, heavenly messenger kind of angel that gives a command. And this assumes that it is a command from God telling the four, the other four, that they're supposed to hold off on doing anything. They're supposed to hold off on doing anything because the, the seal of God, which is in view later in, in verses 4 and following, 4 to 8, the seal of God has to be uh, uh, stamped upon the foreheads of his bondservants. Verse 3 says, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So, the seal of God has to be placed upon the foreheads of God's bondservants. This seal is an indication that they belong to God. Figuratively speaking, they all need to have this seal on their foreheads, indicating, symbolizing the fact that they belong to God, they have come into the faith, they have come into God's kingdom, they have been redeemed by Christ, they have believed the gospel. That has to happen before the earth, the sea, and the trees are harmed. <coughs> and this harm that will come upon the earth and sea and trees is destruction, utter destruction. God will bring upheaval and destruction and misery throughout the whole earth upon the return of Christ, according to Second Peter chapter 3. This is what will happen. And this is what is described here. Between the time of John and the time of the destruction of the earth, there must be the sealing of the bondservants of God. The bondservants of God, those who know God and become His servants, willing servants, they must be redeemed. Verse 4. Verses 4 to 8. This passage has been understood in two ways, verses 4 to 8, two main ways, verses 4 to 8. The first way, which is the most popular today, is understanding it in the dispensational premillennial view, or simply in dispensationalism. They take 
many of the passage in the book of Revelation or more of the passages in the book of Revelation literally than figuratively. And so when they see verses 4 to 8, they see the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribes are named, and a number is given, 12,000 from each tribe, so 144,000, these are sealed. And they say that this paragraph describes in the tribulation Jewish converts who become evangelists. Jewish converts in the tribulation who become evangelists. That's the one interpretation. A second interpretation, which has been more in the history of interpretation throughout church history, and even some today believe that verses 4 to 8 actually described a fixed number of redeemed people. A fixed number that God has a fixed number of people that He will redeem. They have to be sealed. And they are sealed, as it says in verse 4 and in verse 8. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, and verse 8, 12,000 were sealed. So, it is dealing with what we just saw in verses 2 and 3, that they must be sealed. Now, figuratively speaking, in the second interpretation, the number 144,000 does not mean that there are only 144,000 people who will ever go to heaven. And it does not mean that there are only 144,000 who will be saved in some future event. And it does not mean that there are only 144,000 who have this special relationship with God in any sense. That's not the point of the 144,000. The point of giving such a number is to explain that there is a fixed number of people that God intends to save. And the metaphorical, apocalyptic way of doing that here is to say 144,000. Now, notice also in chapter 6, verse 11, we have a parallel to these bondservants who must be sealed. 6, verse 11. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Now, they are told that they have fellow servants who are to be killed as these were killed. And they were killed, according to verse 9, And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. In chapter 6, they were slain because of the word of God. Because they adhered to the gospel and wouldn't deny the gospel, they were slain. That means they were martyred. They were martyred for their faith. Even in chapter 7, though, and in in chapter 6, 6, 9 to 11, and chapter 7, 4 to 8, when you compare these passages, it still does not seem that it's possible to say that throughout history, or at one point in history, an exact number of 144,000 people will be martyred. Certainly throughout the history of the church, from the beginning, from Adam until uh, now, there have been more than 144,000 Christians, true believers, sealed by God, who have been martyred for their faith. There's certainly been more than that. And so, I believe that 
what he's saying is adhering to the faith, though it does lead to martyrdom to those who are faithful, it does lead to that. God has a fixed number of them that will be saved. That he has a fixed number of bondservants, brethren, and the ultimate indication that they are true and faithful believers are that they are martyred. That this is the point of chapters 6 and 11. That there's a fixed number who will be saved. Now one more passage that describes this fixed number is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. We have a parallel idea in these chapters of Revelation 6, 7 and 2 Peter 3 that between the first and second comings of Christ, God is patient and God does not destroy the heavens and the earth because there are people yet to be saved. And notice, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says that God does not, uh, he is, his ways are not restricted by time, according to verse 8. And he's not slow, as the mockers and scoffers claim that he is, because they say, where is the promise of his coming? Verse 4 says, but... God is not want, wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For when he says all to come to repentance, and he's patient toward you, doesn't want any of them to perish, he has to be meaning that there is a fixed number of God's chosen ones, his elect, that will be saved. And he doesn't want any of them to perish, but for all of them to come to repentance. We know that that is the case because all people do not come to repentance. They never have and they never will. All people who ever live at any given point in human history, they all don't come to repentance. So the all that he wants to come to repentance must be all of his sealed ones, all of his bondservants, all of his believers, all of his elect ones. Now, to reiterate that point about election... Notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, there's our word, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There, he says, received a faith of the same kind as ours. Not everybody receives this faith, this true faith. If they receive it, somebody must have given it. 
Who gave it? God gives faith. Philippians 1.6, Philippians 1.29, Acts 13.48, passages that clearly explain that God grants faith. And 2 Thessalonians 3.2 says, Not all have faith. Not all have faith. Because there are some who are perverse men. So, this number in chapter 7, Revelation 7, 4 to 8, I take it to be the, a fixed number of believers throughout history that God will redeem. Now, within the book of Revelation, there is some evidence for this as well. Notice chapter 14, Revelation 14, verse 1. Revelation 14, verse 1. Here we have another passage that mentions the 144,000. 14.1 And I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Now, when he describes them, it does not seem evident to me that when he describes their characteristics and what God has done for them, that he is restricting it to only 144,000 people or believers or Jewish evangelists, today's modern common interpretation. Uh, It doesn't seem to fit because then we also have to say that they never commit sexual immorality in verse 4. And even when it says they kept themselves chaste, that may even indicate that they are unmarried. That they are unmarried. Because ritually speaking, from the Old Testament, when one is married, then one becomes defiled. Because they are not pure anymore. They're not completely chaste anymore. So that may indicate that they never get married. But usually the Jewish evangelist interpretation, they don't hold or say that. Uh, very often that they are unmarried. And then it says in verse 4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Well, what does that mean? Simply that they are very obedient. They do whatever God's will is. They follow Jesus wherever He tells them to go. They are purchased. They are first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 4. And then in verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So, this is hard to say that, that these evangelists are perfect in that they commit uh, no lies. They tell lo- no lies even after their conversion. Because it's hard to imagine that any one person 
or 144,000 of, uh, of people never ever break the Ten Commandments or never ever come close to breaking the Ten Commandments. Certainly we all do that daily in one way or another, whether we lie by hypocrisy, by not being fully consistent with what we say we believe, or in, in some other way, we do that. Therefore, I think in figurative terms, he's saying these 144,000 people are redeemed, uh, a fixed number of redeemed people. All right. Now, a, a few details you might may have noticed in verses 4 to 8. A few details. The first detail is in verse 5, the tribe of Judah is mentioned before Reuben. Even though Reuben, according to Genesis 29 and 30, Reuben was the firstborn. He was the firstborn of the twelve sons of Jacob who became tribes. Well, Judah is perhaps, now we don't know, so these are just my observations or thoughts on the matter. Uh, in verse 5, Judah's first mentioned because that becomes the most important tribe since Jesus is from that tribe. In chapter 5, verse 5, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Therefore, the tribe of Judah has greater prominence because it is the family of David that's in the tribe of Judah and the promises, the messianic promises were given to the tribe of Judah first in Genesis 49. Genesis 49 uh, verses 8 to 11, we have a prophecy of Christ coming from the tribe of Judah. And then later, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, coming from the tribe of David. So, this is perhaps why Judah is first. Then another observation we could have is in verse 7. Verse 7, the tribe of Levi is there, and not the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Levi, but not the tribe of Dan. Why so? Well, the tribe of Levi and certain families, such as the family of Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, the tribe of Levi and the family of Phineas, they were faithful to execute God's will by killing their, their, their men in the same... Um, same nation uh, from other tribes who had worshipped idols and committed immorality. God sent the order to execute them and they were willing to do so. So perhaps they have a place here because of that. And they supplant the tribe of Dan because the tribe of Dan became notorious for idolatry. Became notorious in Judges 18 and 19 they became notorious for idolatry. And then also in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 12, the, the leader, the first king, the first ruler of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam. Jeroboam built, made two calves and built altars in Dan, in the tribe of Dan, and also in the tribe of Bethel. Uh, in the tribe of Ephraim, which was Bethel. So, Dan is notorious because the idolatry of Jeroboam, it was centered there in the north, in the tribe of Dan. And they, from Judges 18 and 19, they were idolatrous beforehand. And then also in 
1 Kings chapter 12 and following, Jeroboam led them even more astray into worshiping a calf. Then in verse 8, verse 8, we notice that Joseph is mentioned and not Ephraim. Why not present the name Ephraim and why Joseph? Well, Ephraim also, Bethel is in the tribe of Ephraim, and they also had a calf there that was worshipped falsely. And also Ephraim became one of the most common names of the ten northern tribes. They were called by various names. They are called Israel, but Ephraim was another name for them. And so Ephraim isn't mentioned because it was the ten tribes that had zero godly kings. They had 20 kings in their history from about 930 B.C. to 722 B.C. They had 20 kings, and it was miserable there. It was so miserable that some of the people, some of the faithful there, they defected and came to the tribe of Judah in order to be able to have some ability to worship the true God. They came to the south. So Ephraim became notorious for idolatry as well. And so the name Joseph is there and presented instead of Ephraim. And Joseph, according to Genesis 48, he was the father of both Ephraim and Manasseh, sons who later became tribes. So it is a fitting substitute, Joseph, for Ephraim because Joseph was the father of both Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, verses 9 and following. If the previous paragraph describes that there is a fixed number, only God knows that fixed number. Because verses 9 and following describe an innumerable host in heaven that are redeemed. We don't know. We cannot count. Verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. We take no one to mean no man can count. Certainly God knows. No one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. No one can count this great multitude in heaven. So when we say, when we say, um, how many people are being saved? We could say it in various ways. We could say God has a fixed number who will be saved. He will redeem them. We can also say that this number that God knows, we don't know. No one can count. And then when we compare this great number of people who are saved, we can say that they are few in comparison to the others, the rest, who, are, uh, who will, will experience eternal punishment be destroyed in hell. This is why Jesus said in Matthew, thir- or Matthew 7, 13 to 15, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is uh, uh, big and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many are those who enter by that, that big gate. The big, big gate, broad way, way, many go there, but few enter the narrow and small gate. The small gate and the narrow way. Few enter that. In comparison to all the people who ever live, there's a few. But that few, in terms of actual number, the quantity, is a great multitude which no one could count. Now, 
They are from where? From every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. When he says this, from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, the point is to say that God is not just redeeming Jewish people, Hebrew people, people from Israel, or people from the 12 tribes, or all of the 12 tribes. He's not redeeming them. Salvation was never that way. It was never that way. Abraham was told it was never going to be that way because he had a son by Hagar, Ishmael. Just because somebody's a descendant of Abraham does not mean he's going to heaven. According to Genesis 21 and Galatians chapter 4, Ishmael is lost. He's not saved. So, it never happened that way. It never happened that way even with Isaac and Rebekah because they were told when Rebekah was pregnant with Esau and Jacob that Jacob would be saved and Esau would be cursed. That's the way it was when they were still in the womb. Genesis 25, 23, and also Romans 9, 11 to 13 describes that. So, it has always been the case, even in the Old Testament, that salvation is based on God's redemption, not on uh, posterity, not on lineage. It doesn't matter who your father was, who your forefather was. It never depended on that. And this is why he, they are celebrating people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the way it is. People th from around the world are there before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. They are right there worshiping the Lamb, in front of the Lamb, serving the Lamb. They have white robes indicating that they have been redeemed. Verse 14 says, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Spiritually speaking, you can combine white uh, or, or black plus red and it will equal white. Our black and filthy deeds plus the red blood of Christ produces white robes. That's the biblical equation for redemption. Black sin plus red blood of Christ equals white robes. That's what we receive and the great multitude in heaven receives. And they have palm branches. Palm branches in the Bible indicate... Uh, celebration of victory, cele celebration of a victorious king, of a conquering king. And this is what is there. This is what we will have in our hands, figuratively speaking, celebrating the great victory of God. We are redeemed. And we cry out with a loud voice. Not a soft voice, but a loud voice. A loud voice because when victory happens, people shout. They naturally shout for joy. They shout, they dance, they celebrate, they eat good food, they talk about how great it is. And this is what will happen in heaven. There's a cry that's a loud voice saying, what do we say? Salvation. This is the victory. Salvation. Not just physical victory, which is certainly the case. God gives us that. But it's also spiritual victory. Salvation. Redemption. Reconciliation. Salvation to our God. God belongs to us and we belong to God. To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The salvation is ascribed. It belongs to, it originates with both the Father and the Son who give it to us. And we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that in heaven. Not only do we, but verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne 
and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Even all the angels, the angels in chapters 5 and verse 11, are described as uh, many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They also are innumerable. Innumerable angels, the elders, the four living creatures, they fall on their, uh, before the throne on their faces and they worship God. When they see God and when they hear of what, what God has done, when they hear of God's attributes, when they hear of God, they know God, they're brought into the presence of God, this is what happens. Worship occurs. Verse 12. Amen. Amen meaning, let it be, or indeed so, this is true and right. Amen. This is the way it's supposed to be. Blessing and glory. Blessing meaning praise to God. Glory. Glory to God. Another way of expressing this do honor and praise that God receives. Wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God has these attributes. He deserves these. And then we express to Him that this is what He is. This is what He deserves. He, what He has given to us on a small level. We shout back to Him, praise back uh, express praise to Him with the angels, the angels and the elders and the four living creatures. We're all worshiping and acknowledging this, hearing this in the presence of God. Then to confirm, who is it that's here? And how did we get there? And what is the benefit of being there? Who is it that's here? How did we get there? And then what's the benefit of being there? Verses 13 to 17. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they, and from where have they come? One of the elders asked this, Who are they, and from where have they come? It's not as though the elder does not know. The elder certainly no, does know. He's in heaven, after all. And why would he expect John to know? Why would he expect John to know when John is not in heaven in terms of being dead and then gone, moved on into heaven and in his heavenly state. He's not there. Why would he expect him to know? He's asking this of John rhetorically. He's drawing attention to these ones who are in white robes. He knows the answer. And so John naturally and properly says, verse 14, And I said to him, My Lord, you know, You've asked me, and he does not. He's reluctant to answer. Perhaps he doesn't want to say it in the wrong way. Perhaps he just wants the this heavenly being to just say it. And when he says it, there's no way he's going to be wrong, or there's no way that he's going to incorrectly describe it, or. Uh, describe it 99% correctly or whatever. He's going to describe it 100% correctly. And so he defers back to this elder. And he calls him Lord, my Lord. Now this Lord in your Bibles will be a small l, small l-o-r-d. And this is because it's a, in the Greek usage, in the original language, it is a synonym sometimes of 
being called, um, calling someone a master, or it's just simply respect in public, saying, Sir, Sir or Master, my Lord, you know. So since you know, please explain. Please just say it yourself. You say it so that we all know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These who are, notice in verse 9, who are these in white robes? These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. No, notice, if we take a dispensational view that this great tribulation is a three and a half year period in the future, that's a part of a seven year period, then the people that are redeemed in white robes have to be only those who are innumerable and saved in that three and a half year period. Do you see the dilemma? Do you see the problem? If we say the great tribulation of verse 14 is a three and a half year period, then it, verse 9 simply and only describes those people who are saved in those three and a half years. However, even the dispensationalists love to go to chapter 7 verse 9 and des describe that this describes the redeemed people throughout history. So which one is it? Is it throughout history? Or is it the three and a half year period redeemed? Well, I take this to be those who are saved throughout history. And this great tribulation is in the book of Revelation in this apocalyptic sense. The tribulation is great in that it is the tribulation that we experience throughout history. Throughout history, we experience great tribulation here on the earth. For example, first, or, or Peter says in Acts 14, Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, it's best to take these who are washed who've made their uh, garments white in the blood of the Lamb, the redeemed of all ages. That fits well with the context starting at verse 9. And they've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Then, because they've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, verse 15 says, for this reason they are before the throne of God. For this reason they are before the throne of God. How does anyone ever get to heaven? By the blood of Christ. They're not in heaven because of good works, whether in nominal Christianity, whichever denomination says that good works or faith plus good works get us to heaven, that's wrong. It's the blood of Christ. And faith is a gift by those who have the blood of Christ applied to them by God because of His election of them. That's the way people are saved throughout any period in history. The blood of Christ is applied to them by means of the gift of faith. They exercise that faith in Christ and therefore they are redeemed. This is the way it happens. They are before the throne of God because of that. Not by good works, not by any other religion, only Christ. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ 
whom you have sent. That's the only way of salvation. This is what grants us access before the throne of God. Then what happens there? Verse 15, They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They serve him day and night. Serving meaning serving in, in a worshipful sense. We are worshiping him. And usually this term serve has a priestly connotation. Priests serve in the temple. They serve in the temple. So when they serve in the temple, they are doing their obligation. They're doing their duty to worship God in the way that God has prescribed. And this is what happens to us. We are there doing our duty. We're doing our duty joyfully shouting out praise and adoration to God in His temple day and night. In His temple is likely simply saying in heaven where He dwells. In heaven where He dwells and we do it day and night. Now if we read chapters 21 and 22 there is no more uh, day and night. God will illumine us. So when it says day and night, this is another figurative way of saying it goes on and on and on. It's ceaseless serving of God, ceaseless worship of God forever and ever. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. Spreading the tabernacle over them. The glory of God, wherever God dwells, his temple has his glory. In the Old Testament... First, it was the tabernacle of Moses that had this brilliant glory. Often it's known as the Shekinah glory, the glory of the dwelling place, is in the time of Moses in the tabernacle. And this is why Moses' face shone when he went into the tabernacle and he came out. It was white and bright and brilliant, and the people could not even look at it. It would be akin to us trying to look at the sun, which we shouldn't do, right? So it was akin to that. They couldn't look upon Moses. But here, God's glory, glorious light, will spread all over and all around us. We will enjoy that and be in that presence of, of God in that way when He spreads His tabernacle over us. Just as a tent is spread over whatever is inside, God's glory will do that same way in heaven over us. And then the benefit, verse 16 as well. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now what is this hunger, thirst, and heat? Is this physical or spiritual? It seems to be best to take it spiritually speaking. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. One day, fully, completely, and forever, we will be fully satisfied of spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. That was Matthew 5 and verse 6. Even Jesus offered the woman at the well water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 4, Jesus offered the woman at the well this kind of water, eternal water, spiritual water, that would cause her to never thirst again. John 4, 13. Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is the kind of water that he offers. Then, what is the heat of the sun? The heat of the sun or any other kind of heat, as it says, or any heat. This would be, figuratively speaking, the afflictions and persecutions of the world. Why do we say that? Matthew chapter 13, Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, seed, and soil, Jesus says, of the rocky places, Matthew 13, verse 5, And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And 13, verse 20, And the one, this is the interpretation, Jesus' interpretation of his parable. Matthew 13, 20, And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Notice there, affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. These who are redeemed, they adhere to the word. Revelation 6, 9. They were slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So, figuratively speaking, affliction or persecution. Many people who hear the word, it, that's all it takes. Affliction or persecution, and then they fall away, they don't believe. But affliction or persecution symbolically is described as the beating of the sun, but the true believers, they have the sun beating down on them, and they don't fall away. They endure until the end. They're not going to have, in heaven, we are not going to have, Revelation seven sixteen says, the sun beating down on us anymore. No more afflictions, no more persecutions, no more threat of falling away or anything like that. Nothing like that will happen. Because we will be with God and belong to Him forever and ever. 17. Revelation 7, 17. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of the water of life and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Why is all of this possible? Because it originates with the Lamb. The Lamb in the center of the throne. For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd. The shepherd who cares for his sheep will ensure that they are redeemed and that they make it to heaven. That they are redeemed and that they make it to heaven. And he will guide them to the water of life. We've mentioned that just a minute ago. Notice this is the analogy that Jesus used of redemption and even redemption that he himself will give to us. In John chapter 10, John chapter 10, he said the following, John 10:25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The sheep of Christ hear His voice. He gives them eternal life. They follow Him. Notice that. They follow Him faithfully, like we saw in Revelation 14, 1-4. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They follow Him. He gives eternal life. They never perish. No one can snatch them out of His hand. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is the sense in which He is our shepherd. He ensures that our redemption remains until the end. He gives us the water of life. And then, this beating of the sun and all of the hunger and thirst we have spiritually now, we are, we are battered and, and torn here and there. God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. The afflictions we have, the persecutions we have, God will remove all of that. Even chapter 21, Revelation 21 explaining how God will be among us. 21 verse 4 then says, He shall wipe every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God will give us eternal peace, eternal comfort, eternal hope, and we'll experience it in the full sense because the Lamb will be there and will be there before the Lamb, worshiping God and His Son, Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.